This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving. Matthew chapter 12. Let's pick it up at verse 33. I know we've covered it. It'll be a little bit of review, but then we'll get into, we'll wrap up that lesson and then we'll move into the very next one. Verse 33, Jesus says, either make the tree good and his fruit good or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt. For the tree is known by his fruit. And then he follows that right up with a statement. He says, oh, generation of vipers, how can ye being evil speak good things. And so you think, well, where's the connection there between trees and fruit and then the words of our mouth? Well, because as the tree is known by its fruit, so a man or a woman is known by the words of their mouth initially. They're known by the words of our mouth. If we have good speech, and I'm not talking about eloquent speech, I mean, if we speak of good things, then you can tell what a person's character is a lot of times by the things that they communicate because they communicate what tends to be the most important thing in their heart. So he says either to make the tree good and his fruit good or the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt. And then he accuses those round about him. He calls them vipers and says, how can ye being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. For with thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. So he says, by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. And this is, this is a big deal, because a lot of times people write off talk as not being that important. That's why dishonesty is rampant. That's why people lie very easily, very casually when it's convenient, when it'll spare them trouble, when it will uh, uh, avoid pain or whatever the case may be. They'll readily tell a lie. And then they'll excuse it by saying, oh, well, God understands. You know, if I had told the truth on this, then I'd have gotten a lot of trouble. But that really, that doesn't cut it in the Christian life. It doesn't cut it in any life, but it certainly doesn't cut it in the Christian life. Honesty is an absolute and it is a requirement and an expectation of believers that we be honest in all of our communications. Period. End of story. No exceptions. No, nego no negotiations. And, and the subject of honesty has come up a, a couple of times, two or three times in the last two or three weeks. And I think we've made the statement recently that lies are the beginning of madness. They really are. They're the beginning of madness because when people say things that are knowingly say things that are inaccurate, that are untrue, and they're creating a false impression and a false understanding in the mind of the person they're telling that lie to. And then if the person believes them, then they are now acting on a lie. They are acting on a false and a bad understanding, and then that creates whole different problems, and which in turn creates greater problems than that. And when you have lies believed on a massive scale then you really see your society being turned into hell. You really do. And probably the biggest and most recent large-scale example of that was, well, let's just look at every communist revolution of the 20th century, shall we? 
because they embraced a whole system of lies wholesale. And then to even, th- to even, to even speak the truth, if it was a truth that was contrary to the state sanctioned lies, was to hazard your own life. Here comes the black van. Away you go. And you're never seen again. Or you're out in some gulag for the next 15 years, freezing your life away and laboring your life away. Large scale lies turn whole societies into hell on earth. They absolutely do. Well, where do large scale lies get their beginnings from? From small scale ones. From the individual who tells them. It always starts and stops with the individual. And we hear so much in, in politicking and so much in uh, pol- political commentary about individual rights, individual rights, individual rights, and rights, and right, minority rights, and these rights, and those rights, and everybody's rights, 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 rights. But a lot of people shilling for a lot of the minority rights don't consider that the smallest minority is always the individual, and it doesn't matter what color their skin is. That is the smallest minority right there. And the smallest minority must be honest all the time. And then... Maybe others would be more inclined to be honest as well. But I know in the sinful society, we all want the benefits of honesty without the obligation of being honest, right? Because that's what lets people pull the wool over other people's eyes. That's what lets some people get advantages over others and so on. But here we're told very plainly, every idle word in verse 36, every single idle word that comes out of a person's mouth, they're going to give an account for that word in the day of judgment. These verses, this lesson presents to us a warning to be careful what we say and not to be too quick, too hasty to speak or to give an answer. It's wise to think about what you're going to say before you do it. And I know we live in a time where when people listen at all, they're listening to give an answer. They're not listening to understand what the other person is saying. Listening is a virtue. It really is. It's, it is a practical virtue to, to stop, to stop preparing for one's retort in an argument or one's objection in an accusation and listen and think and then respond, and respond absolutely honestly. Oh, preacher, that's hard though, because don't you know, I did something wrong last week and I got asked about it and I knew it was going to cost me my job if I was honest. Over in Revelation chapter 21, I do believe it spells out what the ultimate destination of everybody who tells or makes a lie. It's not a good place. Honesty, I'm not going to say that honesty is everything. Holiness is everything. Holiness of life, being right with God and letting God, letting God mold you and make you into what He designed you to be. That's what it's all about. And that only comes by way of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. But honesty is one of the cornerstones of the Christian life. Can you imagine what the world would be like if everybody always told the truth all the time? Oh, just picture that. You would have no fraud you would have very little crime or comparatively little crime. You would have, wow, you might have marriages that stay together. Now there's a novel idea. Just saying, if everybody was honest, we'd get a lot further, a lot faster in this life. We really would. But let's move on. So we were warned. Everything that we say, absolutely every little, well, I didn't really mean what I said when I called that person's wife a bloated warthog. 
but you're still going to be called under judgment, whether you meant it or not. He said right here, let's just go back to it. He said, for by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. And that almost echoes perfectly Proverbs 6 and 2, which we've uh, referred to recently. Thou art snared with the words of thy mouth. You ever said something that you instantly regretted, and as the words were coming out of your mouth, you were like trying to catch them to put them back in before they hit the other person's ears. Have you ever felt that way? Uh, probably all of us have at some point. It's like, oh yeah, well, I can't take it back now. That's right. You can't unscramble an egg. And you can't take back words. You can redact them from an official document, but once spoken and they ride on those airways and they go so fast, don't they? Yes, they do. And they bounce off the other person's eardrums and that, that, all that, all the mechanics in there translate all those signals to the other person's brain and they understood the meaning, or at least they thought they did, because misunderstandings are possible. We just can't take it back. You gotta be careful. We've got to be careful the things that we let slip. I'm not just talking about language as far as profanity and that sort of thing. That's a no-brainer. It ought to have no part in a Christian's vocabulary for reasons that we can get into another time because I don't want to lose the thread of this lesson. But everything that we say, well, I was completely honest when I said they were a bloated warthog. Okay, all right. Well, at least you were honest, but did you have to be brutally honest and insulting? Right? I love that insult. I've never actually used it against anyone, but it's uh, that's a harsh one. That is a really harsh one. You got to be careful the things that you say, and be careful to be truthful about the things that you say, and be careful to be wise and graceful in the things that you say. I'm not saying that bluntness is always bad, but bluntness is not always called for. Sometimes it takes a soft touch when you're talking to someone. Sometimes a soft touch just doesn't get through and it has to be bluntness, right? All that comes with wisdom and with time. Let's move on. So it presents a warning to us not to be hasty in our words. And this teaching is, this teaching of Jesus is not to say that it's by our words alone that we're going to be judged. So let me, let me take a moment and clarify this too. It's not just by our words. It's not, so it's not like, oh, well, as long as I just confess Jesus is Lord and say that I believe that God is God, I'm okay. I don't even have to live a life that's commensurate with, with my claim. No, 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 no. That's not what Jesus is saying. But he is making it clear that our words will be weighed in the judgment. They will be, as well as our actions. So we could say that talk is cheap, but sometimes talk isn't so cheap. Sometimes talk can be extremely expensive. An angry outburst, an ill-timed retort, or the wrong thing said to the wrong person. If you doubt that, smart off to the police officer that pulls you over sometime. You ever seen those videos? It absolutely blows my mind. You know, you got pulled over and you're going to get mouthy with the cop. You know he's packing a taser or you're going to argue with him when he says, get out of the vehicle. 
No, I'm not getting out of this vehicle. I'm not, you can't, you got no right to tell me what to, get out of the vehicle or I'm going to hit you with this taser. No, and then they wonder why they're in pain. Sometimes talk is very expensive. That was just by way of an example. I don't think any, I hope no one in here has ever faced that. And hopefully if you have, you never will have to again. Let's move on. Verse 38. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he asked, he answered and said unto them, an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. And there shall no sign be given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. Now, who was Jonas? That's the Greek pronunciation, I believe, of Jonah. Remember who Jonah was? Jonah was the guy, he was a prophet of the Lord back in the Old Testament. God told him, go over to that Gentile city, Nineveh, and, and prophesy unto them, preach to them. And he didn't want to do it. And he ran the other way, he went down into a ship bound for Tarshish, and then the whole story about the whale. Well, that actually happened. It really did. It isn't just a children's story. It's a historical account. Whatever type of great fish it was, we assume it was a whale because they're awfully huge. Along came the whale. There was a great storm. And Jonah said, this is my fault. Just toss me over the edge. And so they tossed him over. And he said, and even according to our Lord bearing witness to it, for as Jonas, verse 40, for as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so this actually became a prophecy concerning Jesus' own fate. Now, it was a different episode. It wasn't necessarily originally intended to be to typify that, but it worked out awfully well. Jonah was three days and three nights in the heart of the, in, in the belly of that whale. And if you go back and you read in there, and I think it was even, it was even referenced over in the Psalms, out of the belly of hell cried I. Were those words attributed to Jonah? And then God had mercy on him. And up came the fish and yarked Jonah out on the shore. And I'm sure that that was a ghastly sight and an even worse smell. And, and it may have even, it may have even been a literal resurrection. I have a hard time, I have a hard time believing that he survived three days in the stomach of a great animal. First of all, no air. Second of all, stomach acid. You do the math. That's not a good combination to support life, at least not human life. But, he was alive again, and then he was out on the seashore, and then he went to Nineveh. Now I have to, I have to branch off a little bit from this to cover this episode about Jonah so that the rest of this actually makes some sense. So Jonah then having an entirely, an entire, having a very thorough change of heart and mind, amen? It's amazing some of the things that we go through can change our attitude, and it can change it for the better, because on, <laughs> On this side of the whale, Jonah was like, no, I ain't doing it. You can't make me. And then on the other side of the whale, Jonah was like, all right, where's Nineveh? Whole different song. Go through things. Endure some hardships. Endure some illnesses. Endure some, uh, some physical or some emotional or some, uh, some mental trauma of some kind. And let it change your attitude for the better. Really, because it's not necessarily God trying to destroy you. It's God trying to make you. It's God trying to get your attention. And that sort of thing is extreme. It should not take that kind of drastic measure on God's part to get a person's attention, man or woman, but sometimes it does. It's better to just have a tender heart to begin with. And you don't have to get swallowed by the whales of life. 
and then cry out to God in your desperation and then get yarked out on the shores of circumstance and then, all right, now I'm ready to do what God wanted me to do. Well, praise God. I'm not trying to throw stones necessarily. Better to go through something horrible and it actually change your mind than to go through nothing and then die lost or continue on with a rotten state of mind, whatever the case may be. So Jonah then went to Nineveh and he preached to Nineveh. Nineveh was a city of Gentiles. They were also, um, they were also, how do I describe this? They weren't stupid people. They were not stupid people, but they were grossly ignorant people. Now those two things are worlds apart. Ignorant does not mean stupid. There are tons of people that are extraordinarily intelligent, but they are also very ignorant. They're unlearned. They haven't been schooled or they live in societies that are dominated by superstitions and things like that. And Nineveh was one of them. Nineveh, I heard described by one writer as saying it was a multilingual dirge of ignorance and death. That was the city of Nineveh. It was not a good place to be, but that's the culture that they had. Jonah went to them, representing the God of Israel, preached to them, and they repented of their sins. They were an enemy of the Israelites. They were an enemy of them. They caused them problems before. But at the preaching of Jonah, miraculously, they repented. At least in that generation that Jonah was in. Why are we bringing that up? Well, let's read on here in our text in Matthew. The men of Nineveh shall rise. Verse 41. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they, re they repented at the preaching of Jonas and behold, a greater than Jonas is here. Jesus was speaking of himself. So the Ninevites, they're going to rise up again in the day of judgment. The Ninevites of Jonah's generation are going to rise again in judgment and they're going to judge the Israelites of Jesus' generation. Why? Because at the preaching of Jonah, or Jonas, if you will, in the New Testament, at the preaching of Jonah, they repented. But at the preaching and the teaching of Jesus, which was the stuff of life, not just the stuff of get right or get you know destroyed, Jesus' preaching is the stuff of life. His own people, right there in his own neighborhood, so to speak, did not repent. Think about that. There's a deeper lesson in that. I mean, there's, there's that lesson right there, but I think right along with that lesson is things that come cheap or things that come free, a lot of times aren't appreciated very much. Years ago, I had a friend. He had a car he was getting rid of. I needed a second car. It didn't need to be a good car. It just needed to run. It was a, it was a ugly old Mercury Sable. Looked like a used bar of soap. You know, this was a 90s model. Like most cars in the 90s looked like. Just looked like somebody had washed with it. It was an ugly car. It was weird. But he needed to get rid of it. And I needed an extra one. I worked many miles away downtown Tacoma and it was a long drive there and a long drive back and we needed to have two vehicles. The two vehicles are almost always better than one if you can swing it. And so I said, all right, I'll take that car off your hands. And he sold it to me. He did not give it to me. He could have, but he sold it to me. And he sold it to me cheap. I mean, it was like a hundred bucks or 200 bucks. And this thing was in good running shape. He just wanted to be rid of it. But talking to me about it, he said, never give somebody a car. He said, never. 
Even if you just sell it to them for a dollar, make sure you sell it to them for a dollar because they'll appreciate it more. If you give it to them free and they walk away and it didn't cost them a single thing, they will not respect it. They won't appreciate it. They won't respect it. They won't take care of it. But there's a lot of merit to that kind of a lesson. Here was Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the world, walking in His own country amidst His own people, preaching to them, teaching them, healing them of their illnesses, raising their dead, doing all of these different things, and for nothing, charging not a dime, and the people didn't even have to travel. Not very far. And yet, how appreciated was that teaching? How appreciated was all that? Now, some of them did. Some of them did very much, and they believed on Him. So I'm not saying that the whole nation of Israel was a bunch of jerks that just rejected our Lord and everything He had to say. It wasn't like that by a long shot. There were many that believed on Him, but there were so many more that did not. And if you'll recall, in another place in the, in the Scriptures, we may get to it in this Gospel, about uh, a group of lepers that our Lord healed. And then they all took off, overjoyed that their lives had been spared from a horrible, wasting, decaying disease. It doesn't kill you in one night. It takes a long, nasty time to die from leprosy. But they all took off and, and ran off with their newly restored health and, and, and all of that. But only one of them came back to Jesus to thank Him. One of that whole group, one came back. And that one, Jesus blessed again in a very special way because all of the lepers got healed. But only the one that came back to tell Him thank you, only the one that came back, did Jesus restore all of His wounds and limbs. You see the difference? You know, Oh, well, I got healed. I got bit by a shark, lost my arm, but I got healed. It all healed up beautifully, but I still have no arm, right? Well, leprosy kind of does you the same way, just a lot slower. But the one guy that came back and told Jesus, thank you, and thanked Him for it, Jesus restored everything that that disease had cost Him. Pays to be thankful. Pays to be thankful in the same way here in the teachings of our Lord. He says, the men of Nineveh are going to rise up in judgment. They're going to rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the, at the preaching of Jonas and behold, a greater than Jonas is here. And then on, on, in the same vein here in verse 42, he says, the queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. It's the same thing. The queen of Sheba, it's understood, was this queen of the south. During the reign of Solomon, who was understood to have been the wisest man that ever lived in until Christ walked the earth. The queen of Sheba traveled all the way to Israel to hear the wisdom of this Israelite king. It, that, that, sure, she was a queen and sure she had the resources, but that still cost an awful lot, doesn't it? And yet there was Jesus with all the wisdom of heaven, far more than Solomon could have dreamed of possessing. There was Jesus sharing the wisdom and the knowledge with all the people of Israel. They didn't even have to travel for it. Do you see the lesson there? 
Sometimes when it's cheap and it's easy or it's free, we just don't appreciate it. But when it costs us something, when it costs us a measure of time or maybe a couple of bucks in the offering or whatever God lays on somebody's heart. And I'm not saying that there's a charge for it. I'm just trying to convey what our Lord was saying. Now, if someone comes in here and they're flat broke, we're not going to put them out on their ear. Oh, no. Jesus spoke very highly of the gospel being preached to the poor. The poor didn't have anything to give or to pay hardly. So it's not about the money. It's about appreciating what our God makes available to us. He says, The Queen of the South shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. And now, the next line seems like it starts, seems like it starts a new paragraph. It really it doesn't. So it directly relates to what he's talking to. He says, when the unclean spirit, verse 43, when the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. And when he is returned, when he has come, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be also unto this wicked generation. What is he talking about there? Well, what he's talking about here is using demonic possession as an example of it. Let's go back and read it again. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he's talking about when a person has been influenced by or even been possessed by an unclean spirit, whether that's a demon or a devil or whatever, it's an unclean spirit. When that spirit is gone out of a man, that spirit walks through, as Jesus describes it, he walks through dry places seeking rest and findeth none. Now, there's a lot that we could extract out of this, and I'm not trying to turn this into a lesson on demonic possession because that's just not very edifying. Okay? And maybe that's for a different time. We'll see. It does still exist. I don't think it's as prevalent or as common, at least in, in our culture today, as some people might think that it is, but it is a very real thing. And one ought to be careful what they fiddle around with and what they open their minds to. They really ought to. It's one reason why Christians don't mess around with drugs and neither should anybody else. It's one reason why Christians shouldn't mess around with drink or anything else. Because it alters your state of mind and it tears down certain inhibitions and it really can open doors to influences that you really don't want influencing you. Because once they're in place, they can be very hard to shake. And it really can take the miracle grace of God to liberate someone from that. But... For such things Jesus came. So I'm not going to make it sound like it's impossible. Best to just avoid all of that if possible. But he says here, all right, when the unclean spirit has left someone, he walks through dry places seeking rest and findeth none. Then he saith, this is speaking of the unclean spirit, not the guy that, that the unclean spirit left, okay? Then saith he, or then he saith, I will return into my house, meaning the guy or the girl that he just left. I will return into my house from whence I came out. And when he is come, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. Now, i got to take my time with this, okay? So suffer me a few minutes to make sure we don't mess this all up and we make it as clear as we can. When the unclean spirit departs from a person, he wanders in dry places, meaning he's looking for another host. He's looking for rest. 
He is a disembodied spirit of some kind. No, this isn't the ghost of your dead uncle. We're not talking about that. We're talking about, we're talking about things far more debased and evil and monstrous and lunatic and destructive. These are not things to tangle with. Okay? That unclean spirit looking for another host is not finding one. And so he says to himself, I'm just going to go back to the guy from which I came out of. And when he does come back, now it's described in the metaphor of a home. It's Jesus says he comes, he finds it empty and swept and garnished. What's he mean by that? He finds that life all cleaned up. He likens that the life to a house. The carpets have been vacuumed, all the flies have been picked up, and it's been dusted, and everything's polished and neat and tidy and in its place. And he even says, and garnished. They even set out decorations. How many here decorates their house for Christmas? Even a little bit. If you have the energy and the time. Gotcha, gotcha, right. I grew up in that. We put the garland over everything. I mean, it wasn't even safe to walk up and down the stairs because we'd wrap the handrails in garland. That's just, that's the way our family was when I was growing up. And there was lights and candles all over the place and it was wonderful. I loved it. Now I don't have the strength for all of that, but that's okay. That's all right. That's what the unclean spirit finds, sort of. When he comes back to the host that he once abandoned. Well, why is he bringing that up? Man, where's this going? Well, verse 45. Then goeth he and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Here's a warning. Have you ever been delivered from anything? Don't let it back into your life. Have you ever been delivered from drugs? Have you ever been delivered from drink? Have you ever been delivered from sin of any kind at all, one kind or another? And there's, there's the list of them, half, you know, my, as long as my arm, maybe even more. Have you ever been delivered from any kind of an affliction or something that vexed your soul like that? Don't let that thing that you cried out to God for deliverance from, do not let that thing back into your life because it'll come back if you let it and it'll come back worse stronger, more vicious and inhumane than it ever was. And then you'll end up living out, you'll end up living out this verse where he says, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. Well, what was the, what was the first state? Oppression, misery, addiction, absolute unhappiness. And that's an understatement. Well, he says the latter end, the last state of that man will be worse even than the first. If the first was miserable, what's the last going to be like? It's going to be intolerably miserable. And you can take that and apply that to during this life, and you can take that and apply that into the life to come. It's not once saved, always saved. And there have been many believers over the ages, not to, not to be a downer, all right, but this just presents a warning, a caution to every one of us as brothers and sisters in Christ, as members of the family of God and of the body of Christ. It warns us, don't let these things back in. Whether it's a, if it was an unclean spirit, certainly don't. But whatever it was that God delivered you from, keep it out. Bar and lock that door. And don't let it in because a lot of believers do let it back in through a back door in their life that they deliberately left unlocked.
Many years ago, there was a preacher, a former preacher in jail. I don't know what his name was. I don't think I ever knew the man myself. He was in jail. He got himself in some very deep trouble with the law. I don't even know what the offense was, and that doesn't matter. He wrote a letter to the man who had been his pastor. In that letter, he made a statement. He said a lot of things. It was a lengthy letter. It was a, it was a letter that was filled with regret and with contrition. And, and, and you could tell by every sentence in that letter that he wished he could go back in time and just change it. But nobody can ever go back in time. But one of the statements that he said in that letter, and I've, I've mentioned it before, was the devil is a master at coming in the back door. Watch yourselves. Have you ever been delivered from a hot temper? From a short fuse? Don't let anger back into your life. Have you ever been delivered from an inordinate lust towards members of the opposite sex? Or frankly, the same sex. Don't let that back into your life. Don't even leave the door unlocked for it. Have your chains been taken off you? Keep them off. Because it doesn't matter how soft they were. They were still chains. They were still chains. So he says, for such a person as that, the latter state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be unto this wicked generation, he tells them. And then he begins, verse 46, and we're going to read it all the way to the end. While he yet talked to the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood without desiring to speak with him. His mother, Mary, and his natural brothers, the other children that Mary bore while she was married to Joseph. You mean Mary didn't stay a virgin? No, she didn't. She bore James somehow and some others. Mary was a married woman. Now, Jesus came into the world by a virgin birth. We know that. And this is just a quick, a quick aside here. But she was lawfully married to a human man. And so they had kids after that. So anyway, while he yet talked to the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood without, desiring to speak with him. Then said one, then one said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to speak with thee. But he answered and said unto him that told him, Who is my mother? And who are my brethren? Oh, I love this lesson right here. I love this one. This is good. And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold my mother and my brethren! Exclamation point. He declared it emphatically and aloud. These are my mother and my brethren. Not Mary and, 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 and my natural mother and brothers that are out there waiting to talk to me. It's not like they'd done anything wrong. He wasn't rebuking anyone. He was revealing a deeper reality and a deeper and a more profound relationship that is obtainable with our Lord, deeper than just the blood in our veins. We here tonight, as many as have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior in sincerity and in truth, we are bound by a different kind of blood. And we are related by that same blood, aren't we? That's the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus washed over our life and over our heart and mind, cleansing us and making us new and making us pure. That's what makes us family. 
And that is a stronger kind of family even than regular blood relations. Now don't take this and run into a ditch of error with it. Well, I now have to disown my natural family. No, you don't. No, you don't. Love them. Try to bring them into the, into the family of God as well if they're not already. Please, don't disown them. They probably love you unless they've got issues themselves. And even if they do have issues themselves, they probably love you. But that's what he said here. And in verse 50, he nails it down. He says, For whosoever shall do the will of my Father, which is in heaven, the same as my brother and sister and mother. The only thing missing there is an amen at the end. Amen. amen. Nailed it. He covered it for us. And that's a fact. You, your family, your family, every one of you sitting way back there in the nosebleed section, your family. You can sit closer. It won't hurt you. I won't even spit on you. I promise. Your family. And that actually means something. Now, you don't always take everything that comes from family. And sometimes family has disagreements but you're still family. As long as we are, as Jesus said, for whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same as my brother and sister and mother. This is the true family of Jesus. So who's a brother of Jesus tonight? I am. Are you? You want to be. You want to be. Who's, who's, well, if you're a woman and you raise your hand, that's probably a little strange. Who's a sister of Jesus? All right, there you go. Who's a mother of Jesus? Well, I don't know what would define that, but hey, whatever. Well, Mary is. Okay, well, yes, Mary is the mother. Yes, Mary is the mother of Jesus. She's not my mother. She's not your mother. Hey, you know where we're going with this. So who's the true family of God? They that do the will of God. They that love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and so on and that. But if we're the family of God, let's treat each other like family ought to. I don't mean your dysfunctional family and bipolar family where every other, every other day was a knockdown, drag out fight or a plate smashing, window rattling, screaming argument or any of that sort of thing, or even the subtler, more passive-aggressive bits. I mean like families supposed to treat one another with love, with respect, with patience, with long-suffering, with all those things that are described as the fruit of the Spirit. That's how family is supposed to be. And the family of God, even more so. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash giving.